This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. This is Mary Lou Tyler, co-author of Predictable Prospecting, How to Radically Increase Your B2B Sales Pipeline. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Also, if you're listening to the show right now and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please hop on Twitter and tell us where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is Marketing Book. Today, we welcome Mary Lou Tyler to the Marketing Book Podcast. We're going to talk about the book she has co-authored with Jeremy Donovan, Predictable Prospecting, How to Radically Increase Your B2B Sales Pipeline. Mary Lou Tyler is the founder of Strategic Pipeline, a Fortune 1000 outbound sales process improvement consulting group. And her clients include companies like Apple, Bose, Prudential, UPS, Orkin, AAA, and MasterCard. She's also the co-author with Aaron Ross of the number one bestseller, Predictable Revenue. Turn your business into a sales machine with the $100 million best practices of Salesforce.com. Listeners may remember Aaron Ross was on the Marketing Book Podcast last year to talk about his book, From Impossible to Inevitable. In 2016, Mary Lou was nominated to the 20 Women to Watch in Sales Lead Management. She's also the host of the Predictable Prospecting Podcast. And, interesting fact, her undergraduate degree was in computer science. Mary Lou, congratulations on Predictable Prospecting and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So about five years ago, I was at the Inbound Conference in Boston and I went into the, the keynote arena where there were thousands of people about to watch a keynote and I got there a little bit late and I ran in and found an open seat and sat down and put my bag down, and I introduced myself to the guy next to me in this room of thousands of people, and it was Jeremy Donovan. Oh, my goodness. So for all of you who go to these conferences, make sure to introduce yourself because you never know who you're going to meet. And so we connected on LinkedIn, and he had a different job then, and he's moved around. So Mm -hmm. at any rate, okay, so Predictable Revenue is a book I talk about all the time. I loved it. It's the sales Bible of Silicon Valley. I think it was Inc. Magazine or Entrepreneur who may have said that or both. Can you explain how this book picks up where Predictable Revenue left off and how working with Jeremy, who I, I believe was a client at the time, how he became a catalyst for writing this book? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to share that story. It's actually a pretty amazing story when I when I think back of how this all transpired. But we, we built Predictable Revenue and launched that book in 2011. Started working in the field with clients and I started noticing some big holes and gaps in the framework and our ability to quickly and rapidly scale businesses. And people were getting stuck in certain areas of the pipeline. And, you know, it looked like gunk, really. It was sluggish. We had velocity issues. 
So I started working on fine-tuning each of those major milestones or positions in the pipeline that I specialized in over the course of the next five years. Fast forward to a year before predictable prospecting was built and uh, created, I visited Jeremy Donovan for an immersion arrangement. We had a, let's see, I think it was like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where we were in a hotel room. We were mapping out all the major positions of the pipeline and all the worksheets that I had. And when we completed that exercise, he looked at me and he said, this is not predictable revenue, Mary Lou. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, exactly. It's five years of just blood, sweat, and tears of working with clients, having them continually push and, you know, take me down those rabbit holes of trying to get this thing really rapid and consistent so they can count on the revenue growth. So I explained to him what I had done. I showed him a 28-step framework that I had built after predictable revenue. And he looked at me and he said, we have got to get this into a book for people. You owe that to your audience to get this in there. And I looked at him and I said, I don't know, Jeremy, it's a lot to write a book. And he said, just so happens I'm a writer. So we collaborated. And all I did was essentially, excuse me, I would dictate to him every week. We'd have a conference call for about two hours. We took those 28 steps and we mapped them into the chapters of the book dictated it. We reviewed everything. He wordsmithed it. We put it into the book with a ton of examples and released Predictable Prospecting in August of 2016. Mm, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's actually a author of the international bestseller, How to Deliver a TED Talk. We should yes. tell the, yes. the listener. And he was very well connected in the publishing world. So, you know, Predictable Revenue was a self-published book. We threw it out on Amazon, made it 99 cents for a very long time. So that built a a following. And then McGraw-Hill took a look at Predictable Prospecting and they opted the rights. So I just slid right into a published author, uh, you know, status. And we had a bestseller of week one with this book too. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So This is the Marketing Book Podcast, but as SETI listeners know, I can't get enough sales books on the show (laughs) because I feel strongly that marketers really need to understand the sales world, the sales process more than they did just a few years ago. Can you add to that and and share why marketing people should be uh, reading books, even books about prospecting? Well, especially this book, because if they looked at the chapters in the book, it'll resonate with them from the very first chapter. And that's because we're looking at our position in the marketplace. We're really focusing sales on figuring out why change, why now, why your company, which is a marketing, it's a marketing principle. The first chapter is the SWOT six, which is a six factor SWOT analysis. And we're using the four P's. We're using all of these marketing principles that are tried and true that really need to be embraced by sales if they're going to be successful. So I think they'll look at these chapters and say, oh my gosh, this is, has quite the marketing slant to it. As a matter of fact, Mary Lou Tyler, we're going to start using that six-factor SWOT analysis. I had never seen that before, and all, I just said, stealing it. it yes, steal is, away. I, I'd never seen that before. And it it makes it it's so much better. And when you describe the the downsides of certain SWOT analysis, strength, mm-hmm. weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, I knew exactly what you were talking about. You know, they yeah. gloss over. Companies will talk about their strengths, but when it comes to weaknesses or threats, it's usually 
pretty lopsided. Yes. So can you tell the story of the, the high-performance sales AE that you mentioned on page one, uh, this whole phenomenon of, I guess, hunter-to-farmer situation and why that is not actually good for the prospecting? Well, and again, this is a marketing phenomena that works really well that sales is not using, and that's the concept of follow-up. Um, you know, in marketing's world, it may be called autoresponders or nurture. But uh, this one-and-done blitzing of calling into accounts, uh, doing a day or an hour or two of blitzing to try to get a foot in the door, get some people bubbling up to the top, and then abandoning it after you're doing that one-time thing is just not a good use of time, records, money, list, you name it. I mean, it just really sabotages your goals of predictable revenue. So we've taken that concept and said, no, we need to put this in the pipeline and build sequences and build touches, but do it in a way that takes into account the relative position this person, this prospect is in the pipeline itself. And so we really want our clients and the readers of this book to embrace that concept of where is my guy positionally along the pipeline, like a mile marker along the freeway? Where are they? Are they in this cold status where I'm trying to wake them up out of their stupor and get them to sort of realize that they do have a problem? Or are they moving further along where they've actually done some searches? They may have an idea of solutions out there. And I need to now impress upon them my value proposition, why they should change, why now, and why me? So this whole book really talks about no more one and done, no more set it and forget it. It's really about continual improvement, process improvement, and leveraging your content assets all the way from start to finish in the pipeline. Let's just add one more thing to that from, I think it was the middle of the book or a little later on. You just, you talk about this dearth of follow-up in the sales world. Can you talk about the dramatic results one does get from multi-touch follow-up? Oh, sure. Now, predictable revenue, we did the email number one, which was looking for the internal referral. And that book was written primarily based on that. And we were able to achieve a seven to nine percent response rate. So for every hundred records, seven to nine people replied back to us, either positively, negatively or neutral. And we were shooting for three out of those hundred to reply positively, two to three neutral, and the rest would be negative uh, replies. And that was it. Then we took it into working status and we used the phone. We may have done some one-off emails to try to get them to a qualification stage. Predictable prospecting really leverages now the technology that's come out since predictable revenue was written. And also thinks about, the, the, again, another marketing concept, the levels of awareness. Where are these people in their head as they start engaging with us? And what content assets can we use to get them to bubble up to the top? So we instill in the book and give tons of examples. We actually give touch sequences that we've worked on. And the routine, typical result is a triple response rate increase. So if we were at 9% response rate, after we run a sequence, we could be 22 to 30% response rate. Just think of what that means in terms of your list and how you're maximizing it and, and reducing the fatigue. Yeah, one and done is really the enemy. And you've even got some graphs in there that show an increasing likelihood of a response the more times that you call up to a certain point. Yes, yes. We've leveraged a lot of our colleagues' surveys and, and research 
And the book is loaded with graphs. So if you need to justify the why behind putting in this type of a follow-up sequence, the data in the book is just very compelling. Very much so. That's why it's a bit of a forehead slap. Again, I've heard it from other folks, friends of mine in the sales training world and so forth, talking about they're just leaving a lot of money on the table by not following up. Let's go to some of the other things that just warmed the cockles of my marketing heart, and that was <laughs> the ideal account profile. Can you explain yes. what that is and why skipping or spending too little time defining it is one of the biggest mistakes companies make? Well, and some of this we can blame on the leadership because they're in their head, they are convinced that the products and services they sell are for everyone. And it's very difficult to get them to think niche, to think a smaller subset that you nurture over time to get to a place where they're going to be high revenue for you, high likelihood of closing, and high referral. So the ideal account profile really has you focus on what, what we call these whale accounts, these, this core set of accounts with whom you would desire to have as a client. Then we go the next tier out and we define the extended universe, which is almost a core account, but not quite as beefy or as revenue laden as the core. But yet we're going to still market to them through the sales channel, but do it in a way that we leverage technology. And then we have a third ring that's everybody else. So the ideal account profile helps you focus and, and segment your potential universe of buyers into tiers. And then those tiers are leveraged with the technology for sequencing and cadencing and, and uh, content asset click-throughs as you work through the pipeline from that cold conversation through a qualified opportunity. And when you encounter a, a leader of a company and they say, well, we want to reach everybody, I'm wondering if it does it help if you start to say things like, okay, but what if you had only the best ones? What would that be? Because I, I run into that sometimes with companies where we're trying to help them <laughs> understand that there's riches and niches. Right. And we do a good, better, best exercise that gets them to really start thinking about it. And when you overlay the human resource time that, that you need to work with a minnow versus a whale, the light bulb does go on eventually. And the fact that there's this out now to say, hey, we're going to nurture the minnows with great content. They're going to see us as a value-added company, but we're just not going to spend the human resource time on trying to get them to have a first meeting with us. We're going to let technology wake up that chill and we're going to have them in a, what I call a while you're sleeping campaign that when they wake up and raise that hand, we'll be there to help them. Now, as it relates to the sale, can you explain the influence map and you know with the concentric circles in it? Yes. Now, this is one area where I'd like to challenge marketing folks because marketing thinks they have prospect personas, which they do for marketing. But if you think about it, what is a call to action for a marketing persona? It's really the marketing qualified lead. It's getting them interested enough so they'll fill out a form, they'll come inbound to you, they'll do some other things in, to engage. What we're trying to do with the sales side is get that first meeting. So our call to action is a first meeting belly to belly, virtually, or face to face, instead of just someone to slightly raise a fingernail saying they're up, you know, they're interested in having a conversation. So the concentric circles is really a way for us to define who indirectly or directly influences our target persona, that person with whom we really need to have a conversation in order to pass this qualified opportunity to either a quota-carrying sales rep who takes it the rest of the way, or we will 
put our stake in the sand saying, okay, this is a forecastable opportunity now because I've spoken with, you know, the, these, that, these, and those, all these people that I know are part of the process. So the bullseye helps us from a calling standpoint to get our foot in the door. It helps us for referrals from those outer ring where they're warm referrals because they indirectly influence our target. And it just is a beautiful way for us to build a calling campaign and also to add more email if we have the content assets to these other people so that we start warming them up and start teaching them the issues and initiatives that are surrounding the problems that they have and how our product can help them. So let's talk about the persona world. Why do sales and marketing professionals often roll their eyes the first time they hear the word persona? You know, I don't know, but it's all about that person across the table from you. And the more that you can get in their shoes and be like them and talk like them and empathize with them, the easier your sales are going to be. So why you would not spend the time to really get to know these people who you love, because they're going to be able to take you into their companies and get you to a closed deal is beyond me. I don't understand why we don't spend more time on that. Back to messaging. You know, the the more that we can touch on what their pain issues are for sales or marketing, the more effective it's going to be. What are some of the ways that you can do to research what your prospects' real pains are? Where, where do you go to find out that's some of that information? Well, there are a lot of search tools now that uh, I was just playing with one this morning that you enter your unique keyword or pain point followed by the word group or followed by the word forum. So you, you basically look for places where your folks gather. Again, here's where the persona is so important. How do they consume information? Where do they consume information? What time of the day do they consume information? So these searches are all finding out more about these people, how they use their language to describe a problem so that you can get more inside of their head as to what it is that's either keeping them from getting to where they want to go, meaning a pain, or their goals to get to a place of pleasure. You know, pain or pleasure, one or the other, is usually used in our emails and in our content to get people to sort of lean in and say, wow, these people really know me. They understand where I'm at. They really get it. I can spend two to three, five, 10 minutes having a first conversation with them. But the the research piece is really thinking about where these people congregate, you know, around the around the water cooler kind of stuff. Where are they? Like my CEOs, they are they're they're basically looking at forums. They're basically looking at book reviews. So Amazon is a big one for me to see which books are popular in my area and what the reviews look like for those books so that I can see if they hit the pain points, if my pain points resonate. They're, yeah. So I use YouTube. I use LinkedIn. I use Amazon. Those are all search engines that will help you hone in on what it is that your prospect is concerned about, excited about, or how, and most importantly, how they articulate that need or that request or that pain or that challenge. Another one you mentioned in the book was Quora. Yes, Quora is another one. 
definitely. They they ask some funky questions over there, but that's definitely another one that in, in the startup world is pretty popular too. Yeah, I, I find the questions on Quora more helpful than going through a lot of those forums on, on, on those groups on LinkedIn, but mm-hmm. that may just be because it's maybe a little spammier on LinkedIn. So yet another area that we may be <laughs> starting to adopt when we're creating content for clients, mm-hmm. the compel with content story framework. Can you explain as much as you can about that? I, I loved it. It's really a very simple matrix of getting you guys to make sure that your emails follow a structure that moves from an emotional to a logical decision-making process. So basically, the way it starts is that we have to trigger our audience, our reader, and if we're doing an email, we would trigger them in some fashion. And a trigger usually is a psychological trigger like curiosity, alarm, mystique, power, whatever it is, again, back to the persona that motivates your person to actually look and say, what the heck is that subject line about? And and it's designed to move those eyeballs from the subject line to the first line. When you get into the first line, the story structure says you've got to present the challenge. Then you've got to, you know, take them down into the abyss of despair of how that challenge is causing them to not move forward the way they want. You then paint a very simple picture of the outcome they can expect, and that's the emotional component of the framework. Then you link that to specificity around how the opportunity is presented, if they go with an opportunity like yours, how others have gone before them. So this is where very small endorsements, testimonials, people who have gone before you, and it's not all about happily ever after. It's about the people who have taken the first step with you. What was their life like when they took that first step? And then what about the people mid-success path? What did they look like? And then finally, the happily ever after, which is where everybody always goes. But in our world, we can't assume that they're ready to go to happily ever after because they may not know there's a problem to begin with. Yeah, you talk about it just getting them out of the unaware stage. Right. Because in outreach, in this book, Prospecting, we are targeting, we are picking the people with whom we want to have conversation. They are going to be in various levels of awareness. This is another marketing concept. And so our emails and this Compel with Content framework addresses the five levels of awareness that people are going to be in because we're reaching out, we're disrupting, we're interrupting their day. We're delightfully doing so, but we are interrupting them and we don't know where they're at in their level of awareness or in their head. So you mentioned email. I'd like to ask you to explain the following quote from the book, which I believe was attributed to email service provider MailChimp. Mm -hmm. When it comes to email marketing, the best subject lines tell what's inside and the worst subject lines sell what's inside. Yes. (laughs) In other words, don't trick your prospect. Don't be cute. Don't create a subject line that builds curiosity, but is in no way relevant to the body of the email. That's just not good. Not cool. You really need to link the story together so that the reader feels like they've really got value out of that very short and sweet email, whether it's 80 characters or 80 words or 480 words, it still follows the same structure we just talked about. And it reminded me of another thing you mentioned in the book, which is the idea of companies calling prospects and then their phone system picks up a local phone number. 
Mm-hmm. So local phone numbers are more likely to be picked up when people see them on caller ID. And yes. you you said, yeah, you can do this, but y- you know you you got to be careful because you this is it was almost kind of a clickbait. It's a similarity for me to to clickbait. And when I have gotten phone calls from companies, and I'm not going to mention any names, but their initials are Marketo. Uh, <laughs> They, I know they're in San Francisco. They call me, and I see it's a local phone number. And the first question I ask is, "Are well, I'm confused. Aren't you guys mm-hmm. in San Francisco? And then right off the bat, they're back on their heels like, oh, yeah, well. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. No, I'm, I'm definitely quality, quality, quality. I mean, this whole book is all about measuring quality, improving quality, and continually improving the way that you communicate so that you're adding value at every transaction. Every conversation adds value. Otherwise, do not pick up the phone. Do not send that email. Before you hit the send button, you read that thing and ask yourself, is, is this going to transform my prospect's day by me sending this? If it isn't, then don't send it. If it does, if, don't leave voicemails that don't add value. Absolutely. One other question about email, which is a real, you know, thorn in my side, which can you explain why purchasing an email list is such a risky idea? You know, it's funny because I come from large call centers. I ran a 250 seat call center where all we did was set appointments and and meetings for financial services. We lived and died by a list. (laughs) So, so I, you know, I hear I hear the pain of people thinking, ugh, lists. And the thing with lists is that they're lists. So they're sold over and over and over again to people. And you've got to take that into consideration when you market out and when you're selling outbound, especially outbound. And if, there, if you're on a list that has a lot of fatigue, you're going to get a lot of opt-outs. And it's not worth it. You know, in some cases, you can get a list with a good foundation so that you can get counts of your universe. And I do use lists for that purpose. If we're, you know, back to the CEO who says he can sell to everybody and then we convince him to go with a niche, we really need to get the counts of what's available in order for us to market outbound to these people. And if we only have 50 Bettys where we need 5,000 in order to make our framework work, we use the list for that. But maybe a rented list, but also the issue of your own ability so that your your own domain won't be marked as a spammer. In other words, if you're sending out a bunch of emails that are mm-hmm. purchased from someone else, they're probably not good lists. A company's ability to send out emails in the future is imperiled because you could be marked as somebody who's a spammer. Exactly. And there are there are outsourced service bureaus who send emails on your behalf that use alternate domains because of the fact that they're spamming. That's always a big red flag. If you if you try to reach out to a outsourcer who's going to do these emails for you and they suggest that you use a separate domain for that, buyer beware. <laughs> they're spamming. <laughs> so Again, surprisingly, you state in the book that a shocking majority of B2B companies completely ignore valuable inbound leads. Why is that? I think it's because we're conditioned to think they're all minnows, that they're not necessarily, they're they're tire kickers. They're not necessarily targeted, but because we spent all this time going through the SWOT and the ideal account profile and the personas, We should be able to now, with all the tools out there, when an inbound lead comes in, do enough research before you place that phone call to see if it's in that 
those that bullseye or the extended universe. If it's in one of those two, then we have MBOs, which are measurement by objectives, where we have to follow up on those leads within a 24 to 72 hour timeline. But they have to be in those first two tiers in order for that MBO to take effect. Everybody else goes into a nurture sequence and makes the prospect work a little bit harder in order to get uh, us to, to, to get that phone call set. So social selling, very popular topic these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it means different things to different people. In fact, I recently interviewed uh, Jamie Shanks about his terrific book, Social Selling Mastery. You mentioned that social media is great for research, but not so much for reaching out to prospects. Ex- explain why you say that. Well, a lot of it is because, first of all, the channels that are available, other than LinkedIn for B2B, are very murky. I mean, we're all out there on all these channels and I track everything and it's still kind of the wild, wild west when it comes to reaching out to people and adding value. Plus, you're limited in a lot of the social networks into how much value you can add, the length of the actual connection request. So I think there's that and there's the thing about, you know, people still kind of hide behind their social media avatar, (laughs) And that you don't necessarily know who you're reaching out to and, and, and what their value is for you. So I'm all about the linking for connections, linking to build your referral network. I think that's a great use of social media. And I use that a lot in my work to link out to people in my second and third levels. But I always do it in a way where I reference a first level. So there's always a, an explicit referral of someone who's in my first level with whom is connected already with my second request. And that's how I use it. Yeah, and I think, I can't remember if in the book you talked about sending LinkedIn requests, but maybe only after you've spoken to people as it relates to to dealing with a prospect. Well, I think though even that, you know, that's 2016 August, so things are changing. LinkedIn has a whole new way of doing business now. Yeah, <laughs> you know? well, I, I so. liked it because I don't like getting these LinkedIn requests from people that then turn around and start, pitching me spamming and spamming you. me. Right. And just for anyone who's listening, yes. when I do get one of those, I accept and I always send a message back and say, hey, I don't think we've met before. Or maybe you're listening to the podcast. Then they start in with their canned spam pitch. Mm-hmm. I remove the connection and then I report them for spam. I, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I just yeah. it just irritates me. So let's talk about qualifying prospects, disqualifying. You mentioned that there are two bad things that can happen in sales prospecting. Two? That's it? (laughs) Well, two big things. And this is related to my friend, the sales trainer. He works for Sandler Corporate, Brad McDonald. He always says, no is my second favorite word. Mm. So you talk about pursuing prospects who endlessly string you along, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as signing up customers who are not a good fit, and and it's going to end badly anyway. Right. So let's talk about BANT. Can you explain what BANT is? And Mary Lou, why do people in the sales world want to argue about its efficacy until the end of time? <laughs> it's funny. These conversations that I have with sales executives, it's it's like all or nothing. It, there's never shades of gray. It's black or white, black or white, black. And it's like, no. I mean, even, even the band itself, you could have the same product as I did with clients that depending – Back to that persona again, depending on who who is the main decision maker on a particular path through the pipeline, are going to, you're going to need different parts of the band. Now we should and maybe step not back and as explain many. What, what the acronym is, stands for? Yes. 
the the BANT is a very old sales construct that stands for budget, authority, need, and timing. And it was a way for us to categorize and catalog potential opportunities as good, better, best, really, is to figure out, do we want to put our stake in the sand and say, I am now entering this into the forecast, mm -hmm. which upper management relies on for revenue. So we, they came up with the BANT because it was a way for us to understand how deep we need to get into the qualification process in order to have a viable opportunity that we can forecast. So the BANT I still use because I want people to think about how long, especially if we're separating sales roles, which we haven't talked about, but sometimes the sales organization have roles that they do certain tasks and that's it, like a business developer or a prospector, also called a hunter versus a closer or account executive. So anyway, back to the BANT, we essentially use very a variety of BANT questions and also BANT kind of like formulas, depending on the product and where it's being sold in the company. But it's as if, in the, like in the marketing world, there's no shortage of articles that say things like, SEO is dead, or <laughs> content marketing is dead. And I think I see just as many that say, Bant, obsolete. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or I like this one better. Or let's take off this letter. You know, and it, people, it's very simple. When you do your SWAT, and you do your ideal account profile and your prospect personas, you then map the products that you sell and the services that you sell, and you decide when you draw your pipeline on the back of a napkin how far you need to get into the pipeline in order to forecast, in order to feel comfortable that you're putting your name on an opportunity and you have a high probability of closing that thing. That's where the band comes into play. If you don't get budget, or if the timing is two years out and you need it to really be six months, you want to know that. <laughs> so especially the boss. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. it's sort of like, you know, customer relationship management, CRM software. I think there's some very nice, simple ones out there. And you mentioned some in the book. But a lot of companies, I would say the majority of companies still aren't even using it. So they, if they would just pick one, you know, that would be a that would be a big help. The same thing with band. I don't think they're using any, you know, construct to qualify. They're just chasing everything that comes in. So if they if they at least start with that. And yes. then oh, later they can determine, oh well, well, maybe we should make some adjustments. So last question about the book. Let's talk about what was my probably my favorite concept in the book, and I'd never heard of it before. Meaningful conversations <laughs> in the sales yeah. process. It just really resonated. Can you explain this concept of driving down the freeway and the difference between an exit and a mile marker? Yes, this is my favorite thing. And this comes from the call center. Because when we were on the phones in the call center back in the dark ages, when you hung up that call, you had to file it somewhere. And so I came up with this construct of, okay, a meaningful conversation is a progression so that when you hang up the phone call, if you progressed either forward to the next mile marker, like on a freeway, or you took the exit out, meaning you went out of the active pipeline into either do not call, do not contact, nurture, long-term follow-up, whatever, you need to disposition that call as such so that we know that there's been progressive movement. It could be forward or out. Anything else 
is spinning your wheels at the same mile marker and is not meaningful because you haven't learned anything new and you are not able to really tell your manager that the call went to a point where you now understand something more about the call. So a meaningful conversation is something we use as a metric for the predictable revenue formula because we want to know how many of those and in what capacity and where positionally in the pipeline we had them so that we can see if we have skills issues, if we have list issues, all of these things are driven by that meaningful conversation metric. I'm not a salesperson, but I have a business, so I'm always interested in this. When you described that and you just talked about an exit, it immediately brought to mind some deals where they just went sideways. You know, we were just wasting time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and We've maybe all been it, there. Maybe it hurt a little bit, and that's why I really... <laughs> I really liked it. So we've all been there. We've all been burned by that, you know, lowly person in the company that said, I'm the guy. Don't worry. I'm the guy. Yeah. I'm the guy. Uh-huh. Don't worry. And you just never, you spin your wheels. You're doing a, just a 360 at mile marker two. You're, you're visiting <laughs> or you're doing pre consulting. Yeah. The healing has begun. <laughs> Mary Lou. So if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Put a process in. That's the most important thing. Don't worry about whether you're lousy on the phone, whether you have no content, whether you don't have prospects. Just get a process in that you can walk through, make it like a freeway where you start. Now, this is for us. You start with that first conversation. So you warm up the chill to get to the conversation through the qualified opportunity and beyond and really take each of those mile markers and make them intelligent stations along the way that give you intel as to where you are, where you have to go, and how long it's going to take you to get there. The secret of getting ahead is getting started. And I heard something recently where uh, somebody was talking about, they were talking about content marketing and publishing content. And he was saying the same thing, just get started. And he said, companies will say, oh, well, we're not going to be perfect at it, or you know, we don't really know how good we're going to be, and they have all these objections. And he's saying like, That's basically like saying to an 18-month-old child, you know, you're really not getting this walking thing, so you might as well just not even continue. Yes. (laughs) Or if you want to be perfect at jumping rope when you're five and, you know, go go out the door jumping rope, you have to work, you have to work up to it. You have to be consistent. You know, we're all athletes out there in the sales and marketing role, and we're continually trying to improve our performance and do it in a way that keeps us sane and you know less stressed, hopefully. So what books have inspired your work and career? I have been influenced by all the sales leaders. I mean, Neil Rackham is is like my favorite man on the planet. And he endorsed this book, which At I was just thrilled. At the top of the book jacket, yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So his book, Spin Selling, which really got me, as an engineer, got me figuring out the sales conversation and sales skills, which I didn't have. That was a, just a game changer for me. And then I love all the copywriting greats. So I've got Tested Advertising Methods. I've got Breakthrough Advertising, which is not even published anymore. Common Sense Direct and Digital Marketing by Drayton Bird. So I really look at the content pieces because I think that drives our ability to be more predictable in our sales conversations. When we have good content, when we allow people to consume the content on their terms, but we kind of watch to see how they're kind of going through the content, that's invaluable for our work. So I love all my copywriting books that I have, and I 
I have them on my top shelf, which means I refer to them daily. Okay, so did you hear all that, marketers? <laughs> the salespeople are into this. So totally. uh, those are great books. And I've read, I think it was Claude Hopkins, which I think he wrote in the 20s. But isn't it amazing when you can read a book like that or How to Win Friends and Influence People? Mm-hmm. And just, it's so it's still so accurate uh, and so helpful today. Yeah, like How to Write a Good Advertisement by Victor Schwab. I mean, our emails are like billboards. You know, they're, they've got to get the attention, the interest, the desire right away. we got to hit them between the eyes. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? The book is available at all retail channels. You can go on Amazon and look up Predictable Prospecting, and you'll see that book and Predictable Revenue. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm Mary Lou Tyler. And then my website is also MaryLouTyler.com. I do have a page dedicated to the folks who have been reading the book. They've been sending me a lot of questions, a lot of clarification. They want me to drill down into things more deeply. So as I've been doing that, I've been posting those teachings and learnings and cheat sheets and worksheets on that page. It's called MaryLouTyler.com slash swag, S-W-A-G. I've been to it. It's terrific. And you even have an interview with Jeremy, uh, one part of it. Yes, because we wanted to do a behind the scenes of why he twisted my arm to get this book out the door. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Oh, boy. So the name of the book is Predictable Prospecting, How to Radically Increase Your B2B Sales Pipeline. The authors are Mary Lou Tyler and Jeremy Donovan. Mary Lou, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. I had a great time. And that closes the book on episode 114 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if your next event needs some inspiration and entertainment, I'd be happy to present to your group key insights from over 100 marketing and sales books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you. And please join us next time as we welcome Jeb Blunt back to the show to talk about his new book, Sales EQ, how ultra-high performers leverage sales-specific emotional intelligence to close the complex deal. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs>